BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Hear ye, hear ye all! The Queen of California has returned! And today, the return of a mythical queen of the Golden State. Welcome, our queen! There's a crowd of people here, and they're all gathered to welcome Queen Calafia, or Califia, or Calafia. There are a lot of different ways to pronounce it, but in any case, she is a literary figure. She's a black Amazonian warrior who some say gave California its name. And I think that my return and my recognition is one step in a journey of of correcting American history. We've got an exciting show for you today. It's all about how California tells its history and who gets to tell it. How art can help us dig up stories that have largely been forgotten. We're going to start with Azul Dahlstrom Ekman, who visited the northern California town of Sausalito to better understand the story of Queen Calafia. I'm here at Dunphy Park in Sausalito, watching Queen Calafia ceremoniously step off her boat and onto California soil for the first time in hundreds of years. Let the reunification ceremony begin! Her story is being interpreted today by the Antenna Theater. The actor playing Queen Calafia is radiant in yellow and gold. She's covered in jewels and surrounded by an all-female entourage carrying spears. Here to greet her are the Cal Alumni Marching Band and loyal subjects. She's stone quiet, though, Maybe it's culture shock? A man named the cocky Californian brings her up to speed. Take a look at this industrial mite right here. Mm. Mm. Doing some heavy lifting. Sixth largest economy in the world, baby! That's a little different than the California she's used to. Saber que a la diestra mano de las Indias hubo una isla llamada California Queen Calafia was a character in Las Sergas de Esplandian, an early 16th-century romantic adventure novel written by Garcia Rodriguez de Montalvo. 
Calafia wore armor made of fish bones, used weapons made of gold, and commanded an army of griffins. On the right-hand side of the Indies, there was an island called California, which was very close to the region of the earthly paradise. This island was inhabited by black women, and there were no males among them at all, for their lifestyle was similar to that of the Amazons. The novel was so popular in Spain that when Spanish conquistadors reached the tip of the Baja Peninsula in the 1530s, they thought they'd found the fabled island of California. The name California stuck, but Queen Calafia isn't as well known. She's only appeared in popular culture in fits and starts, and people don't even agree on how to pronounce her name. <laughs> can I make an entrance or can I make an entrance? You don't have a clue who I am, do you? My name's Calafia, as in California. Despite being played by Whoopi Goldberg in a Disneyland California adventure movie, many Californians still don't know the woman behind the name. But the actors at today's performance are clearly trying to change that. Raylene Gorham lives on a houseboat in Sausalito and only learned about Calafia a couple months ago. I found it really intriguing and I really would like to celebrate this part of California history. I think it's the right time. Even Kizaya Salah, an actor playing part of Calafia's entourage, is new to the story. And when was the first time you heard about Queen Calafia? Uh, I'm not gonna lie, like two weeks ago. She related the rediscovery of Queen Calafia to a Swahili word, Sankofa. So Sankofa means to look back at our ancestors in order to move forward and make sure that we're not repeating history, you know? That's also a part of Sankofa. Queen At this time in the United States, racist statues are being removed and schools renamed. And many here today see Queen Calafia's story as part of a nationwide movement to re-examine our history. That includes the actress playing the queen herself, Dee Nathaniel. This isn't me as Queen Calafia, but just me as what Dee would say. I think that corrective uh, representation is really important because um, we're looking at the new generation of, of black girls and women of color coming up and it's really important for them to see positive role models. Chris Hardman, who directed the celebration, thinks the Calafia story is essential knowledge for every Californian. It's our origin story. It's like, it's like if you've decided not to read uh, Genesis, <laughs> you know, and you were, uh, and you were a Christian. And he thinks that theater is the right medium. I think that's what, you know, the potential of the theater trick is, is it brings the history in and it makes it like, puts it right in front of you and it says it's live. Deal with it. Get in there. Understand this. And understand the story behind our state's name. I am Queen Calathia and I have come home. For the California Report, I'm Azul Dahlstrom-Ekman in Sausalito.
now we're going to head to Humboldt County in the far north of our state, where there's a new effort to remember the history of early Chinese immigrants. We know they played a crucial role in shaping our state as we know it today. In the 1860s, Chinese laborers built railroads and roads and set up businesses all throughout the West. But just a few decades later, a wave of anti-Chinese attacks and racist laws forced many of those folks out of the communities they helped establish. Now, a new mural in what was Eureka's historic Chinatown is trying to bring that history to the surface. The primary element is a big, large Mandarin duck. It's beautiful. Um, It's native to China. Uh, And it represents how the Chinese people were viewed back when they were living here in Humboldt County before they were expelled in 1885. The California Report's intern, Hector Arzate, went to Eureka to check out the mural and to dig into that history. Hi, Hector. Hi, Sasha. So tell me about what got you interested in this story. What's what's your connection to Humboldt County? Well, uh, I went to college there. I graduated from Humboldt State University in 2019. I grew up in Richmond, California, in the Bay Area. When I got to Humboldt County, uh, something that really stood out to me and a lot of the other, you know, people of color that I, you know, went to school with is the community is very white. In college, you hear these stories of people, you know, walking home from a party late at night and, you know, having beer bottles thrown at them from trucks, you know. Um, And it can be really difficult, you know, being a student of color coming to rural California um, for the first time. It's it's a bit of a, a shock in a lot of ways. As you get up there, you know, you start to hear stories and sort of what feels like rumors about white settlers in the earlier days, you know. Um, And then you also hear rumors of how there used to be a thriving Chinatown in Eureka until 1885 when all the Chinese people who were living in Eureka were forced on boats and sent to San Francisco port. You know, they were essentially expelled from Humboldt County and Eureka and the rumor is that they just never came back. And it turns out that's not just a rumor. There's a lot of historical evidence that this did happen. There was a thriving Chinatown in Eureka, like in many other cities across the West. And uh, it's well documented that the Chinese were forced out of Eureka's Chinatown in 1885. So you decided to dig into this story and find out more. What made you want to go up now and pay a visit? I heard about a mural that was going up in Eureka that would commemorate where Eureka's Chinatown used to stand. So I met up with Brianne Merja D'Souza. She's the coordinator for the Eureka Chinatown Project. This is something that felt very personal for her. She's Chinese-American and also West Indian. So I met up with her at this alley in Eureka. You can see the street slopes down into Humboldt Bay. And that led to a lot of drainage coming through this area. And then the city actually cut off the drainage at 4th Street and all the sewage kind of pooled in Chinatown. It really created these foul conditions and the Chinese were blamed for being foul and dirty and disease ridden when it really wasn't their fault and it was just poor city planning. And that was the inspiration for this mural titled Foul. So it sounds like the mural, which has this big duck on it, it's really like a play on words between F-O-U-L, foul, and F-O-W-L. That was purposeful. When you first look at the mural, you know, what really stands out to you is the bold yellow and the different shades of blue. 
And of course, you will notice that beautiful duck that Brienne mentioned. You know, that's a Mandarin duck, which is very important in Chinese cuisine. That has a lot to do with the culture that the Chinese brought to Humboldt County. But if you look in the background, you can make out what Chinatown used to look like. You'll see these uh, sort of shanty town looking houses, you know, roughly built buildings. And that's really what they're trying to get at, you know, when they play at the, the literal foul duck that we're looking at and then the foul conditions that the Chinese uh, were living in in Eureka. Hmm. So tell me about this moment when all of the Chinese residents of Eureka were expelled. What sparked that? So in 1885, there was a councilman named David Kendall who happened to be walking through Eureka's Chinatown uh, when he was caught in the crossfire of a shootout. He was shot and he ended up dying. The reports are a little bit conflicting. You know, whether it was accidental or not is sort of lost in history. But Katie Bush, who is the executive director of the Clark Historical Museum in Eureka, she says the consensus at the time was that the Chinese purposely shot him and killed him. This was just a few years after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and it would have been during a time of strong anti-Chinese sentiment. And then a mob of about 300 people assembled nearby at Centennial Hall, and they were agitating, trying to figure out what to do about the fact that a white guy had been shot supposedly by Chinese guys. There was a precedent around the West to do things like burn down Chinatowns with the residents inside. And it looked like they were going to burn down this Chinatown too. Uh, But, you know, something different happened. Most of these buildings were owned by a white businessman who did not want his buildings to burn down. So what they ended up doing was assembling a committee of 15 people, and they decided to instead order all Chinese people to leave Eureka within 48 hours. They arranged for ships to take the entire community down to the port of San Francisco, and they threatened anybody who wanted to stay. There were gallows that were set up nearby um, that said any, any Chinamen here after you know, 48 hours or after this certain day would be hung from these gallows. I mean, that's just horrifying. They stayed away and didn't come back. At the time, the expulsion was celebrated for its nonviolence. Some people even began calling it the Eureka Plan, and it was replicated throughout Humboldt County and around the West. It was touted as really successful, this nonviolent way of removing people from places where they've lived for decades, or, you know, many years in some cases. But how can it be nonviolent if you're forcibly removing people? There's a lot of violence in, in the notion of removing people from their homes, whether it's Native Americans or, you know, Japanese Americans who are incarcerated. Uh, this has been a part of California history. Yeah. So, Hector, in the case of of Humboldt County, did all the Chinese immigrants end up leaving? Well, a few never left, you know, like Charlie Moon. Charlie was a Chinese immigrant at the time, and he lived outside of Eureka. Uh, He was a ranch hand in Redwood Creek, uh, and he worked for a man named Tom Bear, who owned the Bear Ranch. Some people got word that Charlie was working for Tom Bear uh, in Redwood Creek, So they showed up armed to the teeth uh, to Tom Bear's ranch. And when they got there, uh, the story goes that Tom Bear said, well, if you're going to get to Charlie, first you're going to have to get through me and my shotgun. So Tom Bear actually stood up for Charlie. And he ended up 
staying in the county? He did. He actually went on to raise Tom's children after he and his wife died. And Charlie also married a Native woman. Her name was Minnie Tom. She was Cholula from Redwood Creek, where the ranch was. And Charlie and Minnie have a lot of descendants who are still living in Humboldt, including Yolanda Latham. Charlie and Minnie are her great, great, great grandparents. I would love to say Charlie Moon had an amazing story, but he worked hard and he probably, you know, saw a lot of hard things and had to go through a lot of difficult moments. And despite the circumstances, Yolanda thinks of Charlie as a survivor. When you look around Humboldt County or any county in California, you have to ask yourself, how did they get that? How did that road get there? Who did that? That was on the backs of the Chinese and the workers and the Native Americans that they had to move out of the way or to get the work done to become that Golden State. I think we need to be honest about the history. We need to be truthful about it. What's done is done, but at least acknowledge it and and memorialize it so that it's not dismissed. So Yolanda actually shared with me a photo of Charlie Moon, and it's this sepia-toned black and white image of a man with white hair and these handsome suspenders. It feels very old-timey, but, you know, looking at the image, it really gives me chills to just think about the history and the person behind the photo, to think about what he went through. So people like Charlie resisted this expulsion by staying on and and refusing to leave their homes. Was there any organized resistance to this effort to get rid of all the Chinese in Humboldt? There were actually 53 Chinese residents who filed a lawsuit against the city of Eureka. It was the first lawsuit for reparations filed by Chinese residents against a city. Um, It was a very big deal that it happened at all. The Chinese were found to not own any property because they weren't legal citizens of the United States. So the case was thrown out against the city um, and the reparations were not made. Katie actually showed me a photo of a fruit vendor back when the Chinatown was thriving. She also showed me a photo and a map of what it looked like after everybody was forced out. Since this is from 1886, it labels Chinatown as vacant. Um, but it does show kind of where the core of Chinatown was. This map also shows where Councilman Kendall, his house is at, and then also the approximate location where he was um, caught in the crossfire, and also the approximate location of the gallows that were constructed. Did any of the residents try to come back or, or rebuild the Chinatown? No, not until 1954, when Ben Chin arrived in Humboldt County. He opened up Canton Cafe in Eureka. Brianne from the Eureka Chinatown Project says that he's actually on the mural, too, in his army uniform. He's a veteran. He was the first to kind of come back and publicly say, I am Chinese, here's my Chinese restaurant. He did face a lot of discrimination when he came back, um, a lot of threats, um, a lot of just people badgering him, telling him to leave and close up shop. And he resisted. He stayed. You know, that was a very courageous thing for him to do. Benchin passed away in 2019. Today, less than 3% of Humboldt County identifies as Asian American. And according to the latest census data, that's slightly less than 4,000 people in the entire county. 
Brienne wanted to commemorate Eureka's Chinatown. She originally just wanted to set up a plaque where the alley used to stand, and the idea grew from there. My son is seven weeks old now. It's so important to be able to see your culture and your history reflected in your community. And until this mural went up, or until the Chinatown project really started, I can't really say that I felt that way. And I'm excited for my son to be able to grow up one day and be able to come here and and see this and to feel included and to be part of the story being told in our community. So what's next for the Eureka Chinatown project, Hector? So a local business has actually partnered with the Eureka Chinatown project to set up a statue within the next year. And they also want to rename the alley after Charlie Moon. And eventually, they want to implement this lost Chinese history in the local school curriculum throughout Humboldt County. Hector, thank you. I really appreciate getting this history lesson about what happened to the Chinese community back in the 1880s in Humboldt County. Thank you so much for letting me share it. Hector Arzate is the intern with the California Report magazine. And now to a piece of classical music that's examining California's colonial history and our state's long and complex relationship with Mexico. Gabriela Ortiz is a Grammy Award-winning composer, and she's from Mexico, but she's a familiar presence in California's classical music scene. She's gotten high-profile commissions from the L.A. Philharmonic, the Long Beach Opera, and the Ojai Festival. This new flute concerto is called The Colonial Californiano. A lot of things can inspire a piece of music. Dramatic vistas, broken hearts. But as KQED's Chloe Veltman tells us, this new piece is inspired by a California fast food chain. The new flute concerto is part of an event exploring the legacy of El Camino Real, the colonial name for the ancient byway dotted with missions that stretched from the Mexican border to Northern California. These ringing sounds aren't really meant to evoke the bells of the old Camino Real missions, at least not directly. But wait, crispy bacon and fluffy eggs might just be better. There's only one delicious reason to wave the perfect dream farewell. The sooner you wake, the sooner you'll get toasted breakfast burritos. Only at Taco Bell. If you see the logo of Taco Bell, it's a bell that reminds you the the missions, but in a very, you know, the modern or pop way. Yep, you heard right. Over a Zoom call from her home in Mexico City, composer Gabriela Ortiz tells me the fast food chain, founded by an American named Glenn Bell in California in the 1960s, partly inspired her new work. Nothing that's serving Taco Bell is really Mexican food, but it's not American too. It's becoming something new. And this is the point. This postmodern homage to California's fast food culture isn't all that far-fetched. Taco Bell's crispy chicken sandwich tacos or cheesy fiesta potatoes come from a hodgepodge of influences, and what we know as El Camino Real is really just a mixed-up fantasy of an idealized California. So the mission uh, past becomes kind of the founding story of the Anglos. 
Robert Senkowitz is a history professor at Santa Clara University. He says white people in Southern California at the turn of the last century came up with the notion of a so-called royal road as a way of romanticizing the past. It was a past which emphasized heroic missionaries, happy, contented Indians, fandangos all over the place, you know, wonderful ranchos, and, and sort of a lotus land of, of contentment and bliss where everybody was, was happy. Senkowitz says the Automobile Association soon glommed on to this idea as a way to get people to go on road trips up and down the California coast. They began to push the notion that the missions were located uh, a day's journey from each other, you know, which kind of, when you think about it, makes them motels rather than what they actually were, agents of assimilation of the native peoples. The absurdity of all of this isn't lost on composer Gabriela Ortiz. In writing her new concerto, she says she was inspired by the Taco Bell sign, as well as other bits of California architecture influenced, however questionably, by El Camino Real. So it was interesting in this dialogue that goes and comes between U.S. and Mexico and how, you know, the Californians see Mexico or how Mexico sees California. The title of Ortiz's concerto is De Colonial Californiano. It's a reference to the Colonial Californiano architectural style, which borrows from the historic missions by way of California. The Camino Real influenced the Colonial Californiano architecture. As the daughter of an architect, Ortiz knows about the subject intimately. This section of the concerto is titled Mission Revival Nostalgia. It references a similar style to Colonial Californiano that became popular north of the border. The easygoing triplets on flute, harp and vibraphone evoke Californians' sentimental feelings about the white stucco walls, stone arches and red clay tile roofs of the old mission buildings. You can see a more modern riff on the style today in places like the Andalusia building in Santa Barbara and the Stanford University campus. And in the section titled Morisco Ornaments, a curlicue solo flute line tinged with Arabic sounding scales alludes to the intricate Moorish style embellishments that can be found on some 20th century Californian and Mexican buildings. The Alcazar Theatre in San Francisco and the Shrine Auditorium in LA are good examples of the style. There's a cultural appropriation going on on both sides. So American architects stole things from Spain and Mexico and then Mexicans steal the fake, so to speak. That's Luis Hoyos. He's an emeritus professor of architecture at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona. He comes from Tijuana. Once the fake has been built in California, we steal it and we build it for cheaper in Mexico. Hoyos says architectural history can tell us a lot about how cultures collide. Buildings do talk and what we put in them and how we use them is another language that gets examined. The concerto ends just as it begins, with a haunting flute passage. After making fun of the copycat architectural back and forth between Mexico and the US, composer Gabriela Ortiz evokes an era before all those mission-style buildings appeared. And no musical instrument expresses the spirit of pre-colonial times better than the flute, with its deep indigenous roots. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman.
And that's our California History Show for this week. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. This week's show editor was Lisa Morehouse. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon, and our producer-director is Susie Racho. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer, and we had help this week from Amanda Font and Hector Arsate. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.